You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Fulm Tran. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past and present as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. On this week's episode, we speak with Samati Verma, who is a managing lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre and a Law Institute of Victoria accredited specialist in immigration law. She has practised exclusively in migration and refugee law for over a decade and has held various roles in private practice and the community legal sector. Samati is currently an advisor to the United Workers Union, a board member of the Migrant Workers Centre and Deputy Chair of the National Visa Cancellation Working Group. For this week's episode, Samati joins us to expose the ways employers are exploiting migrant workers and the lack of protection currently offered to visa holders and undocumented workers, especially when trying to take action against wage theft or unfair treatment. Can you begin by telling us more about your experience in refugee and migration law and how you came to practice law in these areas? So I have been practicing migration and refugee law for as long as I've been a lawyer. It's all I've ever wanted to do as a lawyer. I was not the type of person who went through law school thinking that they would be a lawyer or that it was a particularly good or useful or socially responsible thing to do. But towards the end of my time at law school, Um, It was sort of around 2008, 2009, and I lived out in the western suburbs and I noticed that the ethnic composition of my train carriages was changing, or the the trains that I was on was totally changing. And it was a whole bunch of kind of my age or even younger Indian folks who, who were coming from the state where I was born, Punjab. And I'd just never seen that concentration of that many young Punjabi folks all at the same time. And it turned out what I was witnessing was a really serious economic moment. It was the coming together of all of these migration and sort of uh, economic policies to encourage international students to come to Australia and to study and to contribute their labour, money, time, youth, everything to supercharging the Australian economy. So I began to be interested in issues affecting international students and I was um, involved at that time with a friend and comrade of mine in the Western Suburbs Legal Service and setting up a legal clinic to address some of the issues, including migration issues that students were encountering. You are also currently an advisor to the United Workers Union and a board member of the Migrant Workers Centre. Can you talk us through some of the main issues that migrant workers face in this country? Yeah, sure. So in the United Workers Union, uh, and I've worked for that union and its predecessor union, the National Union of Workers, for close to eight years now. My work there involves running a migration clinic for temporary visa holders and migrant workers, but it's focused very much on temporary and undocumented workers who work on Australia's farms. 
So the type of labour experiences, the type of experiences at work that those folks have are unfathomable, they're unspeakable. They range from basically indentured servitude to run-of-the-mill wage theft, but they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty harrowing and they're connected directly to people's either lack of legal status in the country or the fact that they do have status, but it's extremely provisional and it's not heading anywhere in particular. Um, and their only hope of jumping off that very precarious visa status is eventually by sponsorship through their employer. So basically through that experience, I've learned a few things. The first is that there are, you know, it's not just North America and Europe who have undocumented migrant populations. Australia's got a very large one. Um, the second thing is that because Australia doesn't share a land border with another country, it has to create undocumented workers here in Australia. It has to bring people in with visas and then oversee a process through which those visas end or are stripped away, but people remain in the community as a type of open secret and source of tractable labor. But also more broadly than that, just generally through my work and also through my involvement with the Migrant Workers Centre, um, I've worked a lot with other types of temporary workers. So international students very prominently and people who have been sponsored by their employers. And they have a whole other set of different problems, right? And those problems arise fundamentally from the way that over the past two decades, starting with the Howard government, but, you know, carried over by governments of all political persuasions that really employer sponsorship, your, your boss has been made absolutely central to your life in Australia as a migrant worker. And that change in policy direction is the genesis of all of the problems pretty much that, that workers have. Can you tell us more about these temporary visas? When we think temporary, I mean, for me, it sounds like a really short amount of time, but how long do people end up staying in these visas? And what's the process of moving on to a permanent visa? And is that a very likely outcome for a lot of people? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point. So temporary visas are visas of, you know, sort of finite duration. Temporary doesn't mean, you know, strictly 12 months and you'll renew it every 12 months and so forth. You can have a temporary visa of also indefinite duration, but it's connected to an, an event, say, for instance, uh, a bridging visa that's of a temporary nature. It's connected to a specific event in the future. Temporary visas can range, you know, from anything to... a a month or a few months or a few weeks, even in the case of, say, a visitor visa, to a few years in the case of a student visa, to, you know, several years, five years um, in the case of an employer-sponsored visa. They can go for a really, really long time. And what our immigration system tolerates, in fact, increasingly what it's become, is a system that basically is predicated on temporary visa status, really without any connection to permanent residency at all. So you can come into Australia on a temporary visa, transition to another temporary visa, go on to a third student visa, get onto an employer-sponsored visa, and that employer-sponsored visa can be of such a nature that it specifically precludes you from um, transitioning to permanent residency. That is a totally tolerated set of affairs in Australia. You can have people, the system totally tolerates people being in Australia for 10 years and having absolutely no pathway to transition to permanent residency. That is obviously an utterly enormous problem and sets the scene for people being exploited at work, people having awful experiences in terms of being able to unable to access medical care, send their kids to school. Um, the social consequences are obviously huge. And furthermore, the, the effects that that would have on your mental health, just not knowing from one day to the next, how long you're going to be here, even after 10 years, still being told that you you aren't welcome or there's no uh, certainty as to whether or not you'll get residency or, or continue to live in Australia would be quite frightening and also very damaging. 
totally. It's un, it's like unspeakable, right? Like I've just finished on the phone speaking with someone who has experienced exactly this. So has been in Australia since 2014 on a series of temporary visas, but like in a way that is, you know, the, the typical pathway. So a student visa to a temporary graduate visa to a state-sponsored temporary visa to now a bridging visa waiting for permanent residency to come through. And the mental load of that is so fundamentally extraordinary, not least, of course, because, you know, all of all the material conditions that you've made to encounter, you can only get certain jobs, you don't have Medicare, all of this sort of stuff that fundamentally dictates how your life plays out over those 10 years. But also more to the point that at every single juncture, you're made to beg. At, at the end of every single visa, you're made to supplicate, you're made to beg, you're made to throw yourself, you know, at the whims of, you know, the Department of Home Affairs. You know, that's not something that my parents had to go through. We were back in the old days. I was born in India. We were back in the old days where, you know, you came into the country, you were a permanent resident. That's the way that everyone hated guest worker societies and that's the way that things went. Um, and things were bad enough, you know. <laughs> coming as a permanent resident doesn't solve all of your problems. C coming to a place like Australia, you know, that's fundamentally a, a settler colony um, is not going to be a great experience. But on top of all of this, to have 10 years of basically playing chicken with your own life is just unspeakable and it can't go on. Yeah, and if you think about the current climate that we're in right now with the cost of living crisis, with, you know, housing crisis as well, like I can only imagine how distressing that would be. Yeah, it, it, it's unspeakable, right? And, and what's really interesting about, you know, cost of living crises and housing crises and sort of stuff like this is that they're primarily experienced by you know, people who people who do occupy precarious legal statuses or, you know, people who are marginalised and oppressed in various different ways, but those very same folks are, you know, made to shoulder disproportionately the blame. You know, so temporary migrants are, you know, now the, like, political conservatives and, you know, folks on the right are sort of saying that, you know, migration intake needs to be looked at and, you know, you need to think about how many temporary or permanent visa holders you let into the country because they're all just going to take our houses and, you know, start using our social services, utterly ignoring the fact that those folks are already here and they're, you know, they're mm. owed something. They're literally locked out from those services, but at a certain point they're owed something. So, yeah, it's, it's a harrowing time to be a temporary migrant. I wanted to turn now to the proposal that was put together by the Migrant Justice Institute in collaboration with the Human Rights Legal Centre uh, at the end of last year called Breaking the Silence, a proposal for whistleblower protections to enable migrant workers to address exploitation. Can you tell us in more detail how exactly migrant workers are being exploited in this country and whether or not there's any accountability among employers? Yeah, sure. So, Look, te technically speaking, you know, workplace standards and conditions, the National Employment Standards, the provisions of the Fair, Fair Work Act, obviously they don't discriminate, you know, against people based on visa status. That's obviously the case. Although the reality, on the other hand, is, you know, strikingly different. This is something that we all know. We all receive Uber deliveries. We all know that folks are getting paid below the minimum wage. We know that in instinctively, you know, as well as what we see out there in the world. The Migrant Justice Institute based in New South Wales did um, a couple of massive surveys a few years ago of temporary, thousands of temporary visa holders um, and found that basically more than two thirds were being paid below the minimum casual hourly rate and yet less than 10% took any legal action to recover their stolen wages, even if they knew about the avenues that were available to recover their stolen wages. 
So why is this? Why is this happening? I think that we're beyond the point where the type of answers that we can give to problems like that are because migrants don't know English or because migrants don't know about their workplace rights. I mean, those type of answers are, you know, very easy to give and might make sense to certain types of people, but they just don't check out, right? People people know their rights, but they also equally know that there is no legally safe or available avenue to realise them. So, for instance, what, what we see if we zoom out from the migration system is that it's the conditions of the migration system itself that create the context for exploitation and drive it. So they're not they're not bad Apple employers. They're not, you know, migrants who don't know they don't know English and don't know how to read a contract. But it's the literal set, settings of the migration system. And it does that in two fundamental ways. The first is by imposing a series of really restrictive conditions on visas that mean relating to work that mean that if you engage in work in breach of those visa conditions, it's much more likely that you're going to end up getting your visa cancelled, getting detained and deported from the country, than it is that anyone's going to take action against your employer for the same breach, for allowing you to work in breach of your conditions, right? So that's problem number one. And problem number two is that fundamentally people's access to permanent residency is tied to their bosses, meaning that if they're mistreated by their boss in any way, they have no visa security to pursue that boss and remain in Australia because the result of leaving your employer is that your sponsorship ends, is that your visa ends, right? So there are these two fundamental drivers in built in the migration system of exploitation. The proposal tries to address both of them. So there are two um, protections that we propose. Our headlining proposal is that if if the government wants to target migrant worker exploitation, which it obsessively says it, it wants to, creating harsher penalties for employers that nobody is actually going to be able to rely upon or activate in any way is no good. That's window dressing. That's like paper tiger type stuff. Don't do that. What you need to do is take a worker-centered approach, look at the material conditions that workers are experiencing at work, examine why people are telling you, workers are telling you, look at them and protect them. Protect workers who take action against their bosses. That is the fundamental thing that you need to do um, to ensure they have access to their rights. So The first type of protection is a hard guarantee against visa cancellation where a temporary visa holder has breached their conditions, but they're taking action against their boss, potentially relating to those breach of conditions and why that breach came about. And the second is a a short-term visa that allows people to remain in Australia to pursue action against their bosses and gives them visa security so they don't have to leave the country and importantly, permission to work. Um, So you can't, you know, have a visa scheme that's like, you can get away from your boss, but we'll give you this visa that doesn't allow you to work. Why would you ever leave your boss? Why would you ever take action? It has to allow that freedom. And that visa has to allow you to transition onto another visa that is not dependent upon that very same boss that you're pursuing. So this is, it's not the silver bullet by, you know, any stretch of the imagination. There are all sorts of ways in which, you know, wage theft and exploitation of migrant workers is fundamentally woven into the fabric of the way that the economy operates in Australia. But it's a start. It's somewhere to start. And it's a a way, a way that people in Australia, including, you know, within the union movement, um, the trade union movement, can start to have conversations about migrant workers accessing their rights in a way that isn't fundamentally disempowering about migrant workers, in a way that doesn't assume that migrant workers need to be educated. It permits people and protects people to take action in their own interests. And that is how I think fundamentally change is achieved, you know, by people acting on their own interests, you know, collectively and, and individually. There are a few things that you said just now that that really stood out to me. I think the first is what you were saying about, you know, the current reasons that are given for for this sort of 
not just exploitation, but the lack of action taken by by workers, you know, blaming individual employers or individual bosses, saying that, you know, migrant workers don't understand English very well or, or don't aren't educated enough to understand the system. And yeah, like you were saying, it shifts the blame onto individuals and and away from the system. It makes it seem as though, well, that one boss, yeah, maybe they're dodgy, but the rest are fine. But it's not about yeah. that. It's about the system that's created this in this toxic environment for exploitation to to grow. Yeah, that that's really fundamentally correct. I mean, it, it's just I don't mean to you know a- answer the question in a kind of grandiose way, but you know I've I've been doing some reading recently about you know like early federation debates and debates that surrounded you know the white Australia policy and even earlier in the 1800s, attempts to bring indentured labourers to Australia from India and so forth, people who were sort of rendered landless by the British colonial policies and stuff like that. The opposition to migrant workers, like the discourses have remained like pretty much the same for like a, a couple of hundred years. They're all sort of about this idea of migrant workers being this amorphous mass of people who were like fundamentally like overborne by their circumstances and like totally given to working in situations of indenture, like they're their constitutions are like that. They're like just driven to undermine their own wages and conditions. They're like obsessed with not getting the right amount of pay for for their hourly work or or whatever. But this idea that people are sort of, migrant workers are independently driven to working in conditions that undermine other people's wages and conditions is a way of thinking that I think has historical precedence in Australia and I think has continued over the course of centuries and it needs to be systematically uh, attacked, of course, People want to be paid appropriately. People want to be paid what their peers are paid for the same work. If you simply removed the literal systemic and institutional barriers that prevented them from getting those rates of pay in those conditions, people would access them. So it's a the proposal is a sort of proof of attempted proof of concept. It's like, please stop complaining about migrant workers um, undermining wages and conditions of other workers by allowing them to access the same wages and conditions. And you will then see that everyone wants the same wages and conditions and you can improve wages for all. And I think that's really important to keep in mind, you know, any reform, uh, any proposal needs to be, like you said, centred around the worker and the worker's experience. It's interesting you noted that it, it can't just be about heavier punishment for, for employers or for bosses. There is a possibility that people are then sneakier about it and will find ways to work around those fines or whatever anyway. So, and at the end of the day, that doesn't really do anything for the worker or their experience totally. in, that, in that situation. So, totally. Employer sponsorship arrangements are like, in a perverse way, tying your fate and your interests to the interests of your employer. So, there is a visa system that means that if your employer is subject to a sanction or if your employer's approval as a sponsor is, you know, somehow barred or removed or interfered with in some way, the result is that your visa gets cancelled. So your interest is in protecting your employer because you're handcuffed to the guy. And then we all wonder why it is that, you know, people's wages get stolen and stuff like that. And then we all think about doing know your rights you know, sessions for for people. People know their people know their rights. They know their rights so intimately that they know that they would interfere with their rights if they took action. Across these stolen lands, now called Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. 
We've been speaking to Samati Verma, Managing Lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre. In this next segment, we talk about work restrictions for student visa holders being reintroduced and what this means for workers. So during the COVID pandemic, uh, in order to help meet workforce shortages, the government relaxed the allowable work hours cap for international students. However, the government has just announced that the cap will be reinstated on the 1st of July of this year, meaning that it will raise the previous level of 40 hours per fortnight to the new level of 48 hours per fortnight. Can you tell us more about this? Yeah, so... There's been a lot of discussion about international students returning to Australia because the Albanese government announced that as of the middle of this year, there would be a higher yearly intake of students than ever before in history. So a lot of people have had a lot to say about that, including universities, including you know the government itself, including employer groups and including student groups. A lot of the coverage um, about this issue so far has been universities complaining Um, about students using the language of fraud. So there's been a lot of coverage uh, of the issue of international students returning to Australia by alleging that a lot of the people who are coming are engaging in a fraud, they're relying on fraudulent documents, they're coming here and then transferring to cheaper courses facilitated by education agents, and they're coming here fundamentally to work. That's the reason why they're coming to Australia in the first place. And what's wrong with that discourse of obviously leaving aside the obvious racism of it, because fundamentally we're talking about increased numbers of people coming from India and China, right? So leaving aside the obvious racism of it on its face, there are a couple of things that are really important to remember. The first is that students were, all of those applicants, all of those people who are applying for student visa now, student visas now, are people who are in the pipeline and prevented from coming to Australia on, on student visas for years during COVID. So that's the first thing, the reason for the increased numbers of applications. The second thing is the things that universities are complaining about, these big universities who derive a huge amount of their revenue from international students, the thing that they're complaining about and they're labelling a fraud or giving the gloss of fraud is not in any way illegal. Coming to Australia, studying at a university, deciding you don't like it and then transferring to another university that's cheaper (laughs) once you realise that Melbourne and Sydney have some of the highest cost of livings in the whole world and you'd prefer to pay less for your course. None of that is prevented by the Migration Regulations, the Migration Act, the ESOS Act that covers international students. This is all totally part of the course. And so universities going about banning applicants from certain countries is about them protecting their bottom line and about them trying to identify people who are most likely to stick with them and continue to pay them. This fiction that people, that international students are coming to Australia for work now, like never before, disappears the obvious fact that policymakers have relied upon this entire time for two decades, that students have always worked. They've always worked. The only thing that the 40-hour work restriction or what used to be the 20-hour work restriction earlier than that, the only thing that these restrictions serve to do is compel students to work in circumstances that involve their exploitation, that involve their underpayment, that involve bosses, you know, encouraging them paying them half so they're required to work over the work limit so that they can then dangle the threat of visa cancellation over their heads. So that is really what we're talking about here, this kind of illegalisation, you know, this rhetoric of criminality that, you know, is being applied to international students. It goes from cohort to cohort, but today it's international students or this week. It is fundamentally about, you know, keeping students in their place and creating social support for the re-implementation of measures that are fundamentally going to suppress their wages and that are going to keep them in bad jobs and are going to keep them underpaid because students are 
are not going to be able to not work. It's impossible for anyone to not work in Australia. It's an expensive country and they're paying $50,000 a year to go to their universities or $50,000 for their courses. It's, it's a huge amount of money. And so are there any current protections for, for, for international students? If they work in breach of the 40-hour work limit? Yeah. Um, no, there aren't. No, there, there aren't. There is really no protection, no hard protection against visa cancellation for someone in those circumstances, even where basically they've been coerced into breaching the conditions of their visa. It might go to a broad discretion, something like that, but there's no guarantee that your visa would not be cancelled. And again, very similar to, to what you were describing earlier when it comes to temporary visa holders, that process then of, of taking action or speaking to someone from the Department of Home Affairs is would be quite distressing and costly. And I imagine a lot of students would be very reluctant to do so. Yeah, it's a, a absolutely. You know, the departments, when we've been agitating for these protections, the department's response has been your greatest protection is the wisdom of the visa of, of the cancellation officer who's going to look at whether or not to cancel your visa and consider all of your circumstances and all of that. That is such intensely cold comfort. Firstly, because by the point that you get to visa cancellation, you'll put your entire life on hold to get a lawyer, compile all of your evidence, put together a statement and so forth but also because a person exercising a discretion is unconstrained. They don't have to exercise it one way or another. Even if they do it in a way that's defective, you can't reopen or revisit the decision. Your only option then is to seek review of it in the tribunal. And that means being on a bridging visa, the most precarious form of visa for years. That's not the answer. You know, begging before decision makers is never going to be the answer. A hard, unequivocal protection is the answer. And not only for the actual literal protection that it provides, but also for the clear capacity for communication. So then it will be possible to clearly communicate to migrant workers and clearly communicate to their bosses that, listen, if it so happens that you're underpaid and in the course of that you, you've breached a work-related limit, that will not lead to the cancellation of your visa. And on the other hand, bosses, that will not protect you against this person taking action against you. That needs to be clearly communicable. And saying that there might be a benevolent officer somewhere with it hidden within the Department of Home Affairs it is not that clarity of communication that you need. That was Samati Verma speaking to us about the lack of protection afforded to migrant workers facing exploitation and severe underpayment here in so-called Australia. That's all for Women on the Line today. We would love to hear any comments or thoughts you have about the program, so please send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com. Or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 That's 03 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. All Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash Women on the Line. I'm Fung Tran. Tune into Women on the Line next week on your community radio station.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.